Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we started a new series, actually a series that we do every fall right after Labor Day, on our vision. What would it look like for us if the good news of Jesus changes us? How would that change us? What kind of people would we become living in the world if Jesus were to really get a hold of us and transform us? And we take uh, every fall our vision statement, which is a simple uh, kind of uh, way to summarize that, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. We unpack that. And over the last couple of years, we've been taking a piece of that, practicing the way of Jesus, which is really about spiritual formation and discipleship, together, which is about community. We spent all of last year kind of talking through that. And then this year, we're looking at for the life of the world, the missional kind of piece of that. And so this year, our pastoral priority is that statement for the life of the world. What does it look like when Jesus brings life into the world? And I want to encourage you, if you did not get a chance, last week we just looked at really one little section of John 1, in Jesus was life. What does it mean for Jesus to bring abundant life into the world? And we looked at the story of God and how Jesus came to reclaim goodness in the world and bring flourishing in all dimensions of reality, right? And so we talked, we're going to talk this week about personal renewal. What does it look like when we are personally transformed by Jesus? And the next week we're going to look at social and cultural know what does it look like for us to bring life into the world? And I want to encourage you, um, these are available at our Connect table. You can download these. This is our annual ministry plan um, that explains a little bit more about what that's going to look like this year, some of our initiatives and goals, um, a look back over last year and some of the great things that happened and God did among us, and look, looking ahead at some of the priorities uh, and big things that we're praying towards this year. And our big verse kind of around this series we read last week and I'll unpack next week is Isaiah 61. And so I want to encourage you, if you have not had a chance to look at that, to, to grab one of those. Uh, but today, we're going to have a chat about what it looks like to be personally transformed by Jesus. And more specifically, um, this idea in John chapter 3, which uh, might just be like a cringe alert for some of you, uh, as my kids like to say, um, because when you hear uh, this phrase, it might conjure up, depending on your background, certain uh, negative experiences. Um, it's this phrase, born again. Jesus talks about being born again. And some of us, I know, um, for, when you hear born again, it, it comes attached to a larger phrase, being a born again Christian, right? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to make born again great again, okay? We are going to redeem this term because it is a term that Jesus uses and we have to wrestle with what it means. Just, just so we all know, like, I want to acknowledge, I know that that has become a political term, okay? Uh, there was a, 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 a story that I'll actually reference later in the sermon, uh, a, a kind of autobiographical account by a lady named Jessica Meisner. She's uh, a New Yorker who grew up in a born-again Christian context and then deconstructed her faith. But she wrote this article called Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian and went viral, right? Like, there's a resonance with that. This word actually comes uh, from Jimmy Carter, uh, back in the 70s, who was the first person to publicly say out loud as a public official running for office, I am a born-again evangelical Christian. And it kind of grew into a political movement uh, that became kind of the political right and the moral majority. And so I, I realized that some of us like grew up in churches like that, and it's synonymous with all kinds of maybe good things, but also some really bad, dark things. Um, and so when Jesus says born again, he's not talking politics, just so we're clear. Okay, he's not talking about left or right. He's not talking about conservative, progressive. He's talking about something completely different. So let me put this verse and this passage in context. Book of John, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God, which interestingly, he only uses the phrase kingdom of God in this one little section in the entire book of John. Mostly, he talks about eternal life. 
but he's, he's using a construct that Nicodemus would have been familiar with as a Pharisee. So he's bringing the life of God's kingdom, his new life, into the heart of Jewish faith and practice into the city of Jerusalem. And he's challenging and reframing what it means to, what he calls seeing the kingdom, the optics of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God in a time where that was very contested. You had different uh, you know, kind of platforms, if you will, right? You had the Essenes, you had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, you had the tax collectors. And they all had a different vision for what the kingdom of God would look like and what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. And chapter three takes place between chapter two, where Jesus performs his first miracle or his fir- the first of seven signs in the book of John. Signs are like earthly realities that point us to or signpost to the kingdom of God where Jesus wants to take us deeper. So the first one in chapter two is he turns water into wine at a wedding, right? And he becomes, as you would imagine, very popular. Run out of wine, no good at a wedding. So Jesus brings new wine, and not only new wine, like not the two-buck chuck, but he actually brings, like, no offense. I'm all for Trader's Point, uh, Tra- Trader's Point, Trader, Trader Joe's, for Trader's Point, too. Trader Joe's, uh, you know, cheap wine, but Jesus brings the good stuff. And he says, this is what I came to do. So that's chapter two performs these signs, and everybody's amazed. And then chapter four, he has this encounter with the Samaritan woman that we covered a couple weeks ago. And sandwiched in between is this encounter that he has with a true cultural elite, a cultural insider within Judaism, this man named Nicodemus. So let me just profile Nicodemus for you in case you're unfamiliar with who he was. He's an older man. He's a wealthy man. He's highly educated according to Jewish religious standards. He is a cultural elite Jesus refers to him in verse 10 as, it could be translated A, or I think a better translation is the teacher of Israel, right? Like he was likely, many scholars believe, the leading sage, the leading teacher of Israel when it came to understanding and interpreting the Torah and then applying it to people's lives. So he is a cultural elite. John also says that he's a Pharisee. Right now, Pharisees get a bad rap, right? Like if you grew up in church, it's like the good guys are the disciples, the bad guys are the Pharisees. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. They were a blue collar, gold swagger, renewal movement in the larger uh, Judaistic framework, right? They were attempting to usher in the kingdom of God. They were not just legalists. They were actually a renewal movement and they thought that they could usher in the kingdom of God through personal religious devotion. They thought, uh, uh, as you know, this time in history, the the Jewish temple's been destroyed. The presence of God has left Israel, which was devastating, right? The temple was the center of religious life, economic life, social life. And so as they look back and reflected on, like, why did that happen? Why did we lose the presence of God? Their basic interpretation of that, their narrative was that that the people of God did not keep the Torah strictly enough. They didn't keep the rules. So they devised this system of covenant faithfulness, with hundreds, literally hundreds of oral, meticulously articulated laws. And what they wanted to do is basically take the requirements of the priesthood. They were like, what if we could all live like priests? And so they go back to Leviticus, they go back to the Torah, and they say, if we could all just live like priests, and we could extend those laws to everyone, their hope was that their collective ritual purity, their holiness was their desire, their holiness would invite the coming of the Messiah and that God would return and bring his kingdom to Jerusalem and he would destroy. Think about it. They're living in occupied Rome, right? Like they're living under an occupied power. They're living under a colonialist, imperialist power and they want God to come and displace these people who are oppressing them. That's the vision of the Pharisee. 
Their life was devoted to holiness. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which is a group of about 70 Pharisees and Sadducees, the elite of the elite. This is like the delta force of the religious scholars who were given authority by Rome to rule over the Jews in terms of like the, the legal system and the court system. So what you have in Nicodemus, again, is a cultural elite who is, I, I think here, the paradigm for a dissatisfied, skeptical religious seeker, like somebody that I think we can relate to today, somebody who's very educated, somebody who's religious and grew up in a religious context, but who finds himself dissatisfied. He's wrestling with these signs. So at the end of chapter two, Jesus performing these signs and wonders. And then it says, Nicodemus comes off of these signs. He's wrestling with evidence that Jesus might actually be from God. Notice what he says in verse two. Came at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God or no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So he, he's, he's got this speculation about Jesus, but he's thoughtful. He's got questions. He's wrestling with like, kind of like between these two worlds, like the religious establishment that he's embedded in that makes it seem impossible that this could really be God, that God would incarnate himself in flesh and become the Messiah in the middle of human history. That was not a category for the Pharisees. Some of you exist in communities like that. Maybe it was IU or Purdue or Butler, or maybe your family growing up, where like these claims of the miraculous and who Jesus really was make it almost impossible for you to believe. And yet, you find yourself dissatisfied. You find yourself longing for this to be true and asking questions. I mean, this, this statement, we know that you're from God, is more of a question like, are you from God? Who are you, Jesus? Are you from God? What is your kingdom really about? Because I've got, I've got this construct that doesn't seem to match up to reality. And that's why it comes at night, right? Night in the book of John is not just used as a descriptor for time. It is a descriptor for the spiritual topography of a person's soul. Night is used throughout the book of John to talk about spiritual darkness as well as physical darkness. So he's saying Nicodemus is coming out of darkness. Isn't that crazy to think about that? Like, that, that's mind-blowing. Like, John is telling us you can be religious and be just as much in darkness as an irreligious person. There's as much darkness in religious systems as there is in pagan ones. But, but notice, he's coming to the light right? We read that last week. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. He's drawn to Jesus like a moth to light. And notice Jesus's response. He taps into the fundamental nature of his question, but he does it in a really weird way that doesn't seem to like fit the question that was asked. What Jesus is doing here is, is showing us the life and the renewal that we all long for. Right? He's tapping into this desire, this deep desire that the Pharisees had for renewal, but saying, you're seeking it in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Notice what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb for a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whoever Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Another translation says flesh gives birth to flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus comes with these assumptions about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. 
right? You've got it all wrong. This, now, let me, just, let me just redeem born again. Born again can also mean born from above, and that's my preferred translation here. They both probably mean there are multiple levels of what Jesus is saying, but this word again, like a second time, which is the way that Nicodemus takes it as a literalist, Jesus is saying, you need to be born from above. You need an intervention into your life that comes from outside yourself, that's not outside in, but is inside out, that comes from heaven, that comes from God himself. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, your paradigm for kingdom of God is wrong. It's incomplete. Your paradigm for life, for holiness, for what it means to be right with God is completely wrong. You see, Nicodemus thought that in order to be right with God, it came because of his privileged birth, right? Being born as a child of Abraham, like his ethnicity, his race, his culture, his, his religion is what makes him right with God. He's saying it's not your privileged birth. It's not your education. It's not your moral performance and keeping the rules and doing it right that's gonna usher in the kingdom of God. All that leads to, that kind of performative religion leads to is self-righteousness, That's what Jesus is deconstructing here. You are building a righteousness of your own that will fail you, that will make you smug, that will make you arrogant, that will not bring about the life that you want. And he's telling him, you need to rethink everything. You need to be born again. You need to see reality in a different way. Rethink your life. Rethink your constructs. Rethink what you think flourishing and renewal really looks like. Flesh, he says, gives birth to flesh. This is a fleshly way to pursue life. Flesh, we talked a little bit about this last week in the book of John, is really just the pursuit of progress or life or renewal without the presence of God. There's secular ways to do that and there's religious ways to do that, but it's the pursuit of progress apart from the presence of God. Leslie Newbigin, um, a missionary and commentator on this passage, says this, flesh denotes the whole of our creaturely being insofar as it seeks to organize itself and to exist in its own power and part and apart from the continually renewed presence and power of God. It's human power that attempts at renewal. Human wisdom, human strategies, human education, human views about who gets in and who's not in, who's an insider and who's not. You see, here's the fundamental reality. We're all like Nicodemus. We're all like Nicodemus, desperately seeking progress without the presence of God, desperately seeking flourishing, to be born again, to be born from the above, to have a new start, but to do that in flesh-powered ways. And you know how I know that to be true? Because literally, read the news right now, right? Like, no offense if you're in journalism. I'm not trying to tag on you, but like, there is a whole genre of journalism right now that is called this. I'll just put it like in a little phrase, post-pandemic reinvention, goes something like this. The pandemic's over, right? It's time to reinvent yourself. Like this is what Forbes magazine and Fast Company and the New York Times, like the best of our kind of like secular age uh, prognosticators. Like this is the moment of reinvention. So listen to these headlines. You can be a different person after the pandemic. Like there's tapping into this deep longing that we have for change. Listen to the opening lead on this story. After all, The person who emerges from quarantine doesn't have to be the same old you. Scientists say that people can change their personalities well into adulthood. And what better time for transformation than now, when no one has seen you for a year and might have forgotten what you were like in the first place? Okay, we'll start there. 
Uh, another headline says, designing your post-pandemic life. Are we in post-pandemic? Is that what we're doing? Or is, I thought this was endemic. I, I don't know. But designing your post-pandemic life. Redesign your life. How to reinvent yourself, another headline says, successfully post-pandemic. The new post-pandemic era is all about change and wide-open possibilities. A once-in-a-lifetime chance to start over. There's this deep longing for re invention. And listen to some of the advice, like what does it look like to actually reinvent ourselves? Okay, here's, here's the best advice of our best cultural scholars right now. You ready for it? Here it comes. Get an app that will help you track behavioral change. Change your job. 70% or something like that, 80% of millennials are going to change their job, uh, we think, in the next like 18 months. Change your spouse. The as if principle. Live as if you're actually something else and you'll eventually fuck it till you make it. Get therapy, which God knows we all need therapy right now, but like that's gonna be the thing, the sole thing that fixes you. Change your health habits, change cities, get a vision board for your life. Open up your mind to new options. Listen to what your heart is telling you. These are just straight out of these articles. Put the pandemic in the past and just move forward. The pandemic's the thing of the past. Just tell them to go away. You know, move forward. Block out the noise and the negativity. Okay, like those could be helpful, right? Like I'm not saying those aren't bad. One of my favorite books um, written in the last couple years uh, on this subject of change is by a guy named James Clear called Atomic Habits. You guys ever heard of this book? How to Build Like New Habits, essentially a book on kind of personal transformation. James Clear in this book says there's three layers of change. One, uh, the, the most superficial layer is what he calls the layer of outcomes or results, right? Like, uh, I went to the doctor uh, over the summer. I had uh, bronchitis. It's okay, not COVID, I don't think. Uh, but I had a really bad case of bronchitis. And I went into the doctor, and she said, I went to like an immediate care. And she's like, hey, so your BMI's looking a little off. And if I were your doctor, like we're, I'm supposed to be, we're supposed to be talking about bronchitis. She wades into my weight and she basically calls me fat. And she's like, if I were you, I would start making some lifestyle changes because your BMI is too high, right? So I called my wife and I'm like, not only am I sick, I'm overweight and fat and I'm really depressed now, right? So I went on a journey this summer. I'm like, I gotta lose 22 pounds to get back in my BMI target range. And it's amazing, like it's happened. In the last couple months, I have lost the weight and I'm a, you know, kind of a different person in terms of just the results. Like I had these results. when I, That's the most superficial level. There's another layer underneath that, what he calls processes, which is the habits and the systems. And that's those two levels, outcomes and processes, are the ones that we tend to target when we talk about transformation and change and becoming new people. That's reinvention. I'm going to reinvent my processes and my outcomes and become a different person. And he says there's a deeper layer. The third layer is the layer of identity, our beliefs, our assumptions, our values, our self-image and how we see ourselves and the world. He says that's actually what has to change if we are going to change. Here's what he says. The key to building lasting habits is focusing on creating a new identity first. Your current behaviors are simply a reflection of your current identity. What you do now is a mirror image of the type of person you believe that you are, either consciously or subconsciously. To change your behavior for good, you need to start believing new things about yourself. You need to build identity-based habits. Now, here's the key. How do we do that? He says, decide the person that you want to be and prove it to yourself with small wins. Now, I agree with all of this, like, 
post-pandemic reinvention in the sense that like we want to be new. We have seen darkness, we have seen brokenness in ourselves and in the world in, in the pandemic. And we long for things to be different. And, and I agree, like I'd actually agree with James Clear that we need to have a shift in our identity, a transformation of our identity if we're going to become new people. But I take issue with how that happens, right? This sounds terrifying to me. Decide the person that you want to become. So all the weight of purpose and meaning is on me to decide what life and flourishing looks like in the world. Me, 41-year-old me, who doesn't know anything about the world. Like, it's on me. It's on you at 22 and 23 to decide who you want to be and what flourishing really looks like. And then once you decide, then prove it to yourself with small wins. That sounds awful, right? Like, these life ha- this life-hacking meritocracy where I decide who I want to become and then I've got to generate these strategies and constantly live for the approval of other people and myself sounds terrifying. Why? Because I will never measure up to my own expectations for myself. When I look at myself in the mirror and I say, I'm the kind of person who loses 22 pounds. No, I'm not because I'm going to gain it back in a couple of months. You look at yourself and you say, I want to become the kind of person who's nice. And you try it for a little bit and you prove it to yourself. You say some nice things. You get this app and you're tracking. Oh, I said something nice to somebody at the grocery store. And then the first time somebody cuts you off, you're in road rage and you're cussing them out. And you're like, I'm actually not that kind of person. Like the, 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 the desire that we have to be different, but then trying to prove it to ourselves only exacerbates our sense of shame and just reminds us that we are big fat failures. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, what he's telling all of us that are on the treadmill of a life-hacked meritocracy is that reinvention is never going to be enough. It's not deep enough, right? It's not deep enough. It's not sustainable. You can jury-rig the externals and never really experience true transformation. You can't reinvent yourself with external behavior modification, For Nicodemus, it was birth and ritual purity and covenant faithfulness and Torah keeping and education. I don't know what it looks like for you, but outside in change, behavior modification is like mowing over weeds, but never really pulling up the roots. What God wants to do is not reinvent you or help you reinvent yourself. This wasn't like Jesus was saying, okay, Nicodemus, you've gone 90% of the way. I'll take you home, buddy. I'll take you the last 10%. That's how we approach religion sometimes. I'll do the 90%. And then when things aren't working out, God will take me across the finish line. No, God says you need a conversion of your entire person. What you need is not reinvention, post-pandemic, whatever that means. What you need is regeneration. That's what he's saying. You need a change of heart. You need a change of identity. You need a change so deep in your person in places that you can't touch, feel, manipulate, coerce. On your own, you can't perform this kind of surgery. You need an invention, a, re- a regeneration, not a reinvention. So I think he says to Nicodemus, and he says to us, seek what you're seeking. What you want is life. What you want, Nicodemus. I mean, that's what people get wrong about the Pharisees. They wanted the kingdom of God more than most, most of us, but they were going about it in the wrong way. They thought that you could do it through religious performance. And that is so Midwestern. Be a good person obey the rules, pray, read your Bible, go to church. In the words of that famous theologian, Dr. Phil, like, how's that working out for you? It doesn't. St. Augustine 
crazy pagan, right? Like we know St. Augustine is St. Augustine. But a guy who lived his life for pleasure prior to coming to know Jesus in the fourth century climbed to the halls of power in North Africa. Had this experience and this encounter with Jesus where he began to realize like all of my ambition in life, all the ways that I've sought holiness and wholeness are wrong. And he writes a book about it called The Confessions. And here's what he says. There is no rest where you seek it. You can't find it in your job. You can't find it in education. You can't find it in being a good person. There is no rest where you seek it. Seek what you seek, but it is not there where you seek it. What he's saying is seek life, seek flourishing, but just stop seeking it where you seek it. You're not going to find it in self-righteousness. You're only going to find it in God and the righteousness that he gives by faith. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, unless you're born of water, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God because it's not for those who are at the top of the food chain when it comes to the performative meritocracy. Jesus here is drawing on, what does he mean, born of water and spirit? He's drawing on a text that, is, that like Nicodemus would have memorized as a child. Ezekiel 36 and 37. Israel was in exile because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their injustice. And they were longing for renewal. They were longing for God to restore his presence and his power among them. And this is what the prophet Ezekiel says. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will make you clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities, all of your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all of your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine on you. That is regeneration. What we need is heart surgery. What we need is new hearts, hearts of flesh that are organized against life with God that are trying to pursue self-righteousness, need to be surgically removed from us. Water, the water, the cleansing spirit of God needs to be poured on us to make us new again from the inside out. That's the kind of cleansing that the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. It is the recreation, Richard Loveless says, of spiritual life in those who are dead in trespasses and sins. You don't need to turn over a new leaf, C.S. Lewis says. You need a new life coursing through your veins. It occurs in the depths of the human heart, at the roots of consciousness, infusing new life, which is capable of spiritual awareness, spiritual perception, and spiritual response, and is no longer alienated from the life of God. This is something only God can do. That's why Jesus says you have to be born again, right? Like, were any of you in this room responsible for your births? I've been in the room a couple times. Nothing any of my four children did, right? Just come on out of there, right? They're born again through pain and suffering of the mother, lots of pain and suffering, none from the fathers. Let's be clear about that, none from the fathers. Emotional doesn't count, okay? We are traumatized, but in different ways, okay? Women, pain and suffering of the moms bring forth life. 
And he says, the wind, the wind blows where it pleases. This is the mystery of God. Wind is the, is the Greek word pneuma, from which we get Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word ruach, from which we literally get wind or breath. It, the allusion there is to Ezekiel 37. There's a valley of dry bones. All these people that are dead. How do we, how do we escape exile? Ezekiel says, only the Spirit of God blowing across this valley takes dead things and makes them alive. And that's what God does in Jesus. He takes dead hearts and he makes them alive. He takes dead people and he makes us alive. That is the heart of personal renewal. This is something that God does. It is not the result of human action. It is not the result of human wisdom. It can never be something we think. Like anybody in here that is like a Christian, maybe came to Christ as an adult, did you ever think that you'd be sitting in church listening to a sermon, loving to worship Jesus? No. You're like, this is the last. I didn't grow up in church. We're going to hear from Robin in a minute. She didn't grow up. This is the last place I would ever want to be seen unless Jesus did something crazy in me. That's what renewal looks like. Something in you longs for life. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize all these places where I've been pursuing life, I can't find life. And there's something compelling about the life and the person and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And that's why Nicodemus says, whoa, how can this be? He didn't say, whoa, how can this be? Like, how does this work? I don't get it. And Jesus is like, dude, you're a teacher. Like, your, your knowledge is, is different than the knowledge that you need to be saved. It's different than the knowledge you need to experience life. And Jesus says, are you a teacher and you don't know these things? I've tried to talk to you about earthly things. How are you going to understand heavenly things? Dude, you're confused. Your paradigms are wrong. Your constructs are wrong. Can you imagine that? Like, your whole life you've lived a very religious moral upbringing only for Jesus to come and say, nope, you're going here, it's over here. That's what Jesus does. He's crazy like that. Um, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. What Jesus is saying is only one who's an insider in heaven is qualified in our language, in our modern language, is certified to talk to you about heavenly things, to talk to you about spiritual things. Don't listen to the gurus. Don't listen to the influencers. Don't listen to the philosophy professors at your college. Only one who's been in heaven can come back and describe you. I think of that scene. If you guys ever seen, this is an old movie, so I'm going to stretch you a little bit generationally, but Goodwill Hunting, like Goodwill Hunting, where like Robin Williams and him are sitting on the bench, and, and Will is like this really smart orphan who's super broken, and Robin Williams is really broken, and they're having this conversation, and Will reads lots of books, but he's never experienced life. And, 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 and Rob, I mean, Robin Williams just destroys him on that bench, right? Like in a loving, compassionate way. Like if I were to talk to you about art, you'd tell me about Picasso and yada, yada, yada. If I were to tell you about war, you'd tell me about this. But have you ever actually been there? I've been there. I've watched my wife die of cancer. Like I, I've been there and I'm qualified to tell you what life is really like. I mean, that's, that's the scene here between Jesus and Nicodemus. Only one who comes down from above is qualified to tell you about life. It's like somebody trying to tell you about living in the city. Like people are always dogging living in the city who've never actually lived in downtown. Like, oh, it's scary. Really bad things happen there. It's like your parents and your grandparents that lived outside the city. How does it happen? Jesus says very simply, just as Moses lifted up the snake, I'm going to be lifted up right? Reference to Numbers 21. Because of the people's sin while they're in the wilderness, God sends fiery snakes to literally start killing people. A plague breaks out, and he takes that serpent, the sign of their evil and their sin and their idolatry and their injustice, and he puts it up on a pole, and Moses says, anyone who looks at this snake 
and believes that God can heal them will be saved. And the plague stops and healing comes for those who look to the snake. The snake becomes an instrument of redemption. He says, just like that, Jesus is going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up, he says, in humiliation. I'm going to go to the cross, an instrument of humiliation, an instrument of shame. And I'm going to transform that into an instrument of your redemption. Just like a mother gives birth to a child through pain and suffering and sometimes death, Jesus says, I will be the mother that gives birth to you through my own death. My life, my death, my resurrection is going to be the thing that you have to hope in, that you have to organize your life around if you want healing. That's the kind of righteousness you need. And he says, all you have to do is trust me. For God so loved the world, right? He goes on to say, that whosoever believes, that word believes is not just mental assent. Whoever trusts me is the word. Whoever trusts their life to me will be saved. I came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world, to give you eternal life. Again, we said last week, eternal life is quality of life, like good food. He's elevating life and saying, you think you know life, but the life that you've settled for is actually the perishing life. The perishing life is like David Foster Wallace's idea. It's not that you're not smart. It's not that you can't be successful. It's not that you can't be well-educated. It's that you could be all those things. And like Wallace says in his famous uh, Kenya commencement speech, he says it's to be lost, It's to feel a deep sadness and a sense of futility and despair because those things are not bringing the life that you want. That's the perishing life. And Jesus says, come over here. I want to give you eternal life. So let me just apply this quickly, and then I want you to hear a story from somebody who's experienced this, and then we'll go to communion. Two applications. One, personal renewal has to be the center of how we talk about life in the world. Personal renewal must precede and sustain corporate renewal. Richard Lovelace, again, in his book, Dynamics of Renewal, says, concentration on reformation without revival leads to skins without wine. Concentration on revival without reformation soon loses the wine for want of the skins. We as individuals have to be changed as we are moving out into society, trying to change the world, trying to advocate for the flourishing of humanity, changing systems and structures. We ourselves must be changed. Otherwise, we're going to burn out, right? If we don't have the life of God flowing in us, if we don't, let's just give like a simple, if you don't understand forgiveness, you will move out into the world and you will perpetuate more injustice in the world. Because you will bring your rage, you will bring your depression to the world with you. We must experience renewal. We must be born from above. We must have our identities changed. And that's what Jesus does. He gives us a new identity. You are dearly beloved sons and daughters of God. Your sins are forgiven. You're reconciled to God. God will never be angry at you again. He is your father who loves you. He's given you a new identity out of which your habits and your systems and the results come, but it must start with the Spirit of God birthing that new identity in you by faith. You get a new family, the church. You get new power and authority over evil in the world. You get new practices. This is the new life that we need to experience. And we must be passionate about that. That can't be peripheral. That can't be secondary. It's gotta be at the center because it was at the center for Jesus. We've got to share that good news with others and make sure that we're telling them that you know you can find life in Jesus. We talk about coffee. We talk about Notre Dame. 
Some of us, some of us talk about Purdue. Some of us, I mean, I hear you guys talking about all the new restaurants. Are we that passionate about people experiencing personal change and renewal and transformation? That's why Jesus came. And just understand that it's a process. Second thing, personal is a process. Nicodemus leaves this encounter with Jesus confused, like a lot of people that come into contact with Jesus. He doesn't believe right here. He doesn't become a disciple. He shows up a couple other times in the book, but he's got questions. He's got resistances. And it's repeated exposures over time. Listening to Jesus, learning from Jesus while kind of on the margins of the Jesus community, dealing with his intellectual doubts and his spiritual questions. That by the end of the book, you know, in John chapter 19, you probably heard this story. In John chapter 19, when, when Jesus is killed, and they go to bury him and put him in a tomb. You know who pays for the funeral expenses of Jesus, who, who identifies with Jjesus and all of his shame and all of his humiliation at a cost to his own personal wealth helps cover and anoint Jesus with the spices? Nicodemus. It's a process. And some of you are on that journey. Like the pandemic has disrupted you. And the good news is that like you, you probably needed to be disrupted. We all need to be disrupted, spiritually, religiously, but also like economically, politically, whatever. We need to be disrupted. And, and here's the good news. Crisis and transition can actually serve as the access point for God's renewal in our lives, right? It opens us up in ways. That's why I agree with all that. Like we do need to change. It's just deeper than reinvention. We need to let go of old things, old identities, old habits that were not leading to flourishing for us and the people around us. And we're on our way, but we're in this weird in-between. Any of you guys feel that? Like you're in this weird in-between. You're dissatisfied. You have this sense of discontent. But it's not just with the world. It's like with yourself. Like getting text messages from people. It's like, I just feel restless. I feel weird. I don't know what's going on. There's something deeper, but I can't put my finger on what it is. Like you need to lean into that. That is the first step to renewal. Discontentment, a holy discontentment with the world and the church, yes, but with myself first and foremost, I need to change. I need eternal life. That's why I want to come back to this article as I close and then invite Robin up. Jessica Meisner in that same article, Why I Miss Being a Born Again Christian, says this, and I just wonder if this resonates with anybody in this room. She says this, I know, I think, I think that Christianity isn't real, but I miss believing it was real. When I got confused in my career, hurt by a broken relationship, fellow Christians assured me that it was all part of God's plan to lead me to the right calling or the right person, something that made me calmer and more willing to take risks. Now when things don't go the way I want, I cling to a vague, everything happens for a reason uh, sentiment or confront the fact that maybe life is meaningless because now I can't view trauma as just a rolling ball in some cosmic Rube Goldberg machine. John Jeremiah Sullivan writes in Pulpit that even now, years after he got out of his Jesus face, he still feels drawn to his old beliefs. The sheer sensation of life that comes from a, with a total, all-pervading notion of being, the pulse of consequence one projects onto even the humblest things, he writes of his former faith, the pull that won't slacken. Socially, I sometimes miss Christianity. Intellectually, I'm okay being rid of it. Spiritually, to be honest, in a tiny crack in my soul, I'm still figuring that out. Now, that's no declaration of faith. 
But that dissatisfaction is beginning to creep in. That discontentment and understanding that there are consequences, yes, for living a life for God, but there are also consequences for living a life apart from God. And that holy discontent can sometimes be the thing that pulls us into our need for God. And like Peter, maybe our confession of faith is as simple as this. When Jesus looks at his disciples and everybody's left and he looks at Peter and them and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter, just with a great declaration of faith, says, where else are we going to go? I don't know, nothing better. So we're going to follow you. I want you to hear a story quickly as we close and go to communion. Robin McKinnon, one of our staff deacons, uh, didn't grow up in the church uh, like me and uh, came to know Jesus came to experience this new birth. And I want you just to hear her story and maybe in this, hear your own story and then I'll lead us in the communion after we're done. Thanks, Brandon. Yes, my name is Robin. I'm a covenant member here and I'm grateful for the chance to be able to testify to how Jesus has turned my life upside down. Brandon mentioned I didn't grow up in a Christian home. In fact, my mom was from Denmark. She grew up in a very post-Christian culture and we never just, we never talked about God or Jesus. It wasn't that we knew people who were Christians and we thought they were crazy. I actually cannot remember from my childhood knowing a single person that was a Christian. No one in our family. And so it just was kind of a void. This was just a piece that didn't exist for us. And so as I entered into high school and I was trying to figure out what is life? What's, what is this all about? Um, I jumped onto the treadmill of achievement. And I just, um, I ran after every single thing that I could possibly achieve in order to fill just this kind of gaping hole in my heart, right? So every, I mean, I was student body president and homecoming queen, and I was the editor of the school newspaper, and I competed in all kinds of contests. I did every single thing that I could do. And for a moment, right, I would feel filled and satisfied and then suddenly empty, and I would chase the next thing. And I remember um, in my senior year, I met some peers. They didn't go to my school. They actually lived in different states. We met through some competitions that we were in together. And there was just something so different about them that just drew me in. And as I began to talk to them and ask about their story, the answer each time was Jesus. And so one of them um, spent time talking with me. I I just in my spirit knew that this was a yes for me. And then I was just left on my own. And so I went to college. I had no Bible. I still didn't know any Christians. And I began to try to muddle my way through and figure out what does this all mean. I knew, though, that everything that I had known had been turned upside down. The things that I knew to be true went like this, that the, the reasons that I lived my life were changing. And so I'll remember that I, um, I'm from California. I went to University of California at Davis. I'm sure there were Christian ministries on campus. I never heard of them or found them. So I went to the Christian bookstore that was in our town, which, I mean, the fact that there was one actually is remarkable. And I bought a little study on John, and I went back to my sorority, and um, in our sorority, we had, um, well, we'd start our meetings with a ritual. And so in this ritual, we're, we are literally saying scripture back and forth to each other. 
And so I remember saying to sorority sisters, listen to me. The things we are saying, they come from the Bible. Like, let's read this. And so I, I started leading. I mean, I knew nothing. I'm leading a study on the book of John. And lest you think that um, I had it all figured out, it was I scheduled it early enough so we could all make it to the bars afterwards. So I was just trying to make sense of it all, and I was getting lots of it wrong. But I was, but I was pursuing Jesus, and it really wasn't until I began to date my husband, now Christian, that some of my gaps began to be filled in. And then when we were married, we moved to Ohio. And I love thinking about there was this, we, we were now like in this very small town, Ohio. I moved from the Bay Area of California and I'm going to church. When Brandon said, would you have ever thought you're sitting in a church and you're singing praises? No, we actually, I laugh now because, you know, says how churches do. We taught a kid's class. Like, I just knew so little. When Brandon says all the time when he's preaching, he's like, well, if you grew up in the church, you know. Like, I didn't know anything. I didn't know was Ark. I didn't know what that was. Nothing. And so here we are in this little church, and they loved us so well. And there was this mama, a young mama of five children, which I thought was crazy, um, took me under her wing and just began to disciple me and to pour into me. And I love that Brandon's talking about our walk with Jesus as a process because that's exactly what it's been in my life. As he was talking, I was reflecting. I've, I've been in love with walking with Jesus for over 30 years. And that process has seen... Um, has seen the depth of relationship and love with Jesus grow each year. I was reflecting, I remember um, Christian and I were in this church. Our kids were really, really little. Maybe he's only had a few. And um, the pastor was leading this Bible study. I remember him saying, like, you know, Christ, Christ is, wants to, like, sit on the throne of your life. He wants to guide all things. And I literally said, well, what if you like both share the throat? Like what if you're both sitting together on it? I was in process, right? I was still figuring it out. And, and that's the beautiful thing is Jesus is so gentle with us that he walks alongside us and he invites us into um, deep relationship with him. And he's patient as we go along that process. Here's what I can say. I have never experienced as I did when I was 18 and made the decision for Christ so much peace and centeredness. It's as if I went from a life of striving, of, um, of constantly, um, we talk about it, if you've ever seen the movie Ice Age, there's like this little, I don't know, chipmunk or something, he's always chasing this little acorn, and he's sliding on the ice and he can't get any scurries. It was like this life of scurrying after meaning to just a peace and a calm and knowing that, um, that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that we can put our trust, our faith in him and in the word, and that life with him is filled with so much meaning. Thank you so much, Robin, for sharing that story. And we want to do that throughout this year. Is take time, we want to take time to highlight different stories of how God is transforming us and, and how God is bringing life into the world. Because those stories just hit. I can sit here and talk about it, but to see it embodied and fleshed it, it sometimes hits a little bit differently. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to pray with me, okay? And again, I realize some of you may be religious. Some of you are, are not Jesus people, and we're so glad that you're here. But I, I just want you to ask yourself the question. One of the, one of the questions that Jesus asked his disciples and those who are seeking him the most throughout the Gospels is this question. What do you want me to do for you? He said that all the time. What do you want me to do for you? He was trying to get them to look at their own desires. Like Augustine to say, what is it you want? 
Seek what you're seeking. Don't give up on life. If life isn't working out the way that you thought it would, don't give up on life. Just stop seeking it where you're seeking it. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And, and what I want to do just is I'm praying over you. There's two groups of people in my mind. One, one group is like, man, I'm not a Jesus person, my, but my life, it's not where I want it to be. And I've been seeking life in all these ways. And I'm open. Like, I'm interested. I'm curious. I'm seeking. I find myself like Nicodemus, asking these questions, wrestling with these signs, wondering what does this mean, trying to find meaning and purpose in life in a world that seems to be working against life and meaning and purpose in any sort of, like, comprehensive way or any sort of satisfying way. And maybe for you, this is an opportunity for you just to ask the question, what does God want for me? What does Jesus want for me? Maybe this is an opportunity for me to put my trust in him, to make these words my own, to find life in him. Just very simply, you don't have to do anything crazy. We're not gonna ask you to stand up and do a lap around the sanctuary or become you know, a certain political party. We're just saying like, what are you doing with Jesus? This might be an invitation for you to receive his life. For another group is a lot of you, I know, are followers of Jesus, but you're not experiencing the fullness of life, the abundance of life that Jesus brought for you. You're resisting, right? You're, you, you've, you've blinded yourself. You, you feel like Jesus is so far, and the experience of his love and his life is not close. It's not near to you. Like being born again is not just something for non-Christians. Being born again is something that happens to us over and over and over again. Not that we become a Christian over and over again, but like the experience of his love and being reminded that I am in Christ, my sins are forgiven, Jesus has a life for me, and I need to be renewed. Like renewal is something that is an ongoing reality. It's not something like I did that when I was 12 and I walked in and I signed a card and now I'm good. No, we need that every single week, every single day. So what I want to do is just for both of you, just read over you these words, and I want you to make these words your own. And then I want us to go to communion and just be reminded that God is with us and for us and bringing this life into us. He has not given up on us. And so I'm going to read John 3.16. And every time you hear world, would you just insert your name in there? And I want to invite you to internalize the reality of God's love, to believe it, that he actually is in Christ with you, for you. So let's do this together as our prayer. For God so loved the world. Put your name in there. For God so loved Brandon. That he gave his own, one and only son. So that Brandon, everyone who just believes in him, calls on him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Life with God. Father, that is our prayer. As we come to this time of communion, as we feast on you, the bread of life who comes down from above to give life to people, to give life to systems and structures, to give life to the world. God, may we not miss that invitation in our fury and our anxiety to get out and transform the world. God, may we not miss the opportunity ourselves. That was what the Pharisees missed. Jesus says, you search the scriptures in vain, and yet don't find me in them. You don't find life in them. So God, may we find life in your name today. May we trust you with our hearts, and God, may we find eternal life welling up in us as we feast on the bread of your life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.